Welcome back to another Meet Kevin Report. My favorite metric uh, as of late is honestly Bitcoin. <laughs> it sounds crazy, but it really tells me what the day is potentially going to be like. And so far, it's been pretty right on for the last, uh, gosh, I'd say at least two and a half weeks after the banking crisis. I mean, quite frankly, look at the centi of Bitcoin. This here, of course, is Weeble, that platform where you can get 12 free stocks on. Uh, now, take a look at this. If, if you look at the banking crisis, you don't even have to know what date the banking crisis occurred. You could basically see it. The banking crisis came to a head here. And we quickly recovered back to that 28.2 level. And we've since been bobbing around like a rubber band on a pole, a horizontal monkey bar, bobbing around this level. And we've been stuck here for a good coming on three weeks now. In my opinion, that's actually a fantastic thing for markets because it's suggesting that even through the volatility and the fear and the uncertainty and the doubts that we are facing in markets broadly, banking crisis, politics, China, Ukraine, we are stable around this particular level in terms of risk on sentiment. Now, don't get me wrong, I still think that there are uh, there, there's a real argument to be made that a lot of Bitcoin trading is heavily manipulated by the exchanges uh, and, and particularly whale wallets typically run by exchanges. But that's not to say that I don't think there's some validity to this as a risk indicator. So I enjoy, uh, it's probably one of the first things I look at. Uh, then if we look at the S&P 500, you can actually see we're in a relatively similar trading range on the week here. For much of the year, we're kind of stuck mostly in between uh, the, uh, the first two retracement lines uh, for uh, the, uh, well, I, I should say the, the if this is your, your bottom, your zero, then here's your 23, and then you get into your 30s over here. Uh, we've, and, and actually 50 even over here. We've really been trading around this sort of bottom third over here. Same thing with uh, the NASDAQ, uh, except the NASDAQ just in recent days tried to push through. Uh, and this is despite the fact that we've had so much turmoil. Now, I think this is actually really incredible because now we're starting to potentially break that, that uptrend on the NASDAQ. Uh, and maybe that sets up for a little bit of some selling pressure again, or we just slowly Nike swoosh. In my opinion, uh, I, the Nike swoosh is going to be a long game. People hear me say it, they think, hey, well, why did stocks go red today then? Well, remember, it's always been argued that it'll be extremely volatile. So I really believe that if we zoom out on more of a weak chart, this is the beginning of your Nike swoosh. And if you look at this from the weak chart on the QQQ, you really have to think, well, Kevin, if that's going to be a Nike swoosh because it looks like a reverse Nike swoosh right now, you're really talking about a decade of a Nike swoosh. And yeah, that's actually what I believe. I think this will be a nice, slow, steady, uh, a very volatile when we zoom in, but on sort of the weak charts, it'll look like a very slow and steady, long, elongated Nike swoosh could really take potentially uh, a year, maybe, uh, or two years or three years to get back above some of the heights that we saw at the end of 21, uh, but but really setting us up for this style of a recovery, which we've had since uh, probably somewhere around 2010, just this sort of slow and steady boom again. Uh, not necessarily what we saw after the pandemic, not necessarily at the speed, but what we previously saw. That 
that's a belief that I have right now. Uh, and uh, y'all know I, I changed my mind a lot, but this one's been pretty steady consistently here. Uh, and I like using Bitcoin as sort of a, a little bit of a tell of, okay, all right, how how's the day starting out? And anytime I see it over 28.2, I get a little excited. <laughs> uh, I think the next uh, the next stop probably from a risk metric is, uh, is, is closer to that 36 range. Uh, and, and Bitcoin moves in, in, in funny and, and quick and rapid ways. So uh, we'll take a look at uh, how that evolves. Now, I do want to look at the five-year break even and uh, financial conditions as well. I try to do that every morning uh, in addition to the research uh, that we do throughout the day uh, or in the morning. The five-year break even is a pretty cool tool just to see sort of sentiment of the day of where uh, markets' heads are at in terms of inflation. Uh, yesterday, of course, we got the jolts data. Jolts data, in my opinion, softer uh, than uh, than expected. Some people are saying, "Oh, but you know, you know, quits weren't that high, and and, and maybe that that is a signal of uh, uh, of, of of some strength." Uh, who knows? People can argue some of these both ways, which I think is fascinating. But the five-year break-even right now, if I look at it. It actually did come down after some of that jolts data. It did rise after the uh, oil talk. But uh, take a look on screen now, and you can take a look at the five-year break-even. Here you're going to see the five-year break-even right now relatively stable, sitting around that 2-4 level. Uh, and when I say stable, I mean relative over the last uh, maybe six or seven months here. Let's see, September is nine. So, yeah, six months. So it puts us back about six, six and a half months here of, uh, of, of roughly sitting at average right now. Hold on one sec. Oh, I hate it when those sneezes come out of nowhere. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so anyway, sitting at roughly about average there on the uh, five-year break even. Now, that's good. That's actually a good thing. Now, it doesn't predicate... Uh, rate cuts yet, right? And in order for us to see rate cuts, we really need to be about a percentage point lower, maybe 80 basis points lower than where we sit now in order to anticipate cuts from the Federal Reserve. However, this can move very, very quickly. We saw that during the banking crisis when we actually went from hot January numbers and fears of hot January numbers and, uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, the beginning of uh, sort of a uh, too much of a little bit of a risk-on rally there right before the banking crisis. How quickly the banking crisis killed inflation expectations and renewed uh, stagflationary fears. Uh, and, and so now we're sort of level again uh, without, uh, without some of those, uh, uh, you know, euphoric uh, feelings uh, and some of those fear feelings. So sitting again right there at that six-month average, uh, which is a good thing. So uh, now it's just a matter of, okay, well... What's next? What's next for the markets? What's next for spending? What's next uh, for inflation? Uh, and uh, that's where I'd like to jump into some of the uh, sentiment pieces that we've got. The uh, first one that I'd really like to pay attention to uh, incorporates this earnings call that, that I thought was uh, probably one of the most ridiculous earnings calls uh, I've seen in quite a while. <laughs> so we'll have to go through that as well as looking at uh, corporate spending and some hospitality spending. Then we'll get into a little bit on JPM, and we'll talk a little bit about the Fed as well. So uh, we'll call that sort of the uh, the market intro, uh, and then let's jump into uh, consumer spending. So that's always a big deal, especially since the consumer represents about 75, uh, eh, probably less now. It, it used to be about 72% actually, but now it's fallen a little bit, probably closer to about 65% of the economy. So uh, we'll start there. 
And uh, let's talk about consumer spending a little bit. So we know consumers make up over two thirds of the economy. And one of the things I love paying attention to is what's happening at the edges and the fringes. What's happening with poorer spending and what's happening with richer spending because it gives us an idea of where are people starting to cut back. And there are two areas we're starting to see cutbacks where ordinarily you don't wanna see them to keep a good boom bull market going. And in this case, we're going to look specifically at corporations and richer household spending. So let's jump in with corporations, then richer household spending, and then we're gonna talk about a CEO that lashes out about what's going on in the market right now. Now, this is also related to the spending sectors I'm talking about, but I haven't seen a CEO, in my opinion, in an earnings call, a professional earnings call, lash out the way this one does. Usually CEOs are really respectful and uh, you know they, they, they don't trash their competitors. Uh, all, all bets were uh, off uh, this time around uh, and uh, <laughs> you're, you're gonna see a little bit of entertainment in an earnings call, which is usually the opposite of what you would expect to get in an earnings call. But first, let's understand what Barron's thinks is happening in terms of corporate spending. Take a look at this. Here's a piece on companies see a slowdown ahead and this figure tells the story. So let's take a look at the story that Barron's is suggesting. So first, companies are tapping the brakes on capital spending as they anticipate cooling demand. That's not great. They are conserving cash as they prepare for a tougher economic environment that might be prudent on their part and good news for shareholders. After all, good news for shareholders, when a corporation cuts back, you temporarily see a boost to operating profits, right? But what if they're cutting the potential investments in their business that actually let them continue to see growth? This is actually a very important thing to consider when you're investing in stocks is, wait a minute, it's fantastic that the company I'm investing in is cutting their SG&A expenses, their selling, general, and administrative expenses. But if they're cutting selling, are we potentially robbing from the future growth of the company to have a higher margin now during potentially a weaker time? And often the answer is yes. Now, in many cases, there are also companies that just take advantage of the layoff cycle of a recessionary environment to get rid of poor performers. This is very normal as well. After all, think about it. Companies don't want the reputation of firing poor performers because if people regularly get fired, it makes it harder for a company to promise job security to new employees when they come. However, if a company can throw up their hands and say, whoa, recession, sorry, man, we got to cut back. We got to, you know, we can't even offer the food we used to offer anymore. Sorry, we got to lay off a bunch of people. Generally, not always, okay, not always, but often the first people to get laid off are the poor performers that if a company had a firing policy would probably be fired anyway. There are a lot of companies where people would actually be really hard workers in and they'd look around and go, this is so frustrating. There are other people putting in 10% the effort I do yet they get paid the same amount, but the companies don't have a policy where they can actually fire people. So they wait for a recessionary cycle and then they go through the weeding cycle. It's not, not saying everybody who's laid off is affected by that. Just saying, it's a very common thing that corporations do. So 
in this same weeding cycle, what is Barron's telling us? Well, they're actually saying that companies may be cutting back on CapEx substantially based on the charts Barron's is looking at. And that could be a red flag for companies that sell heavy equipment or technologies and systems used in CapEx. Now, the first thing that I think of when I think of heavy equipment is I think of the investments that farmers were making during the inflationary cycle uh, after uh, the pandemic, during the supply chain crises uh, for shipping, but also for food, like farmers for, for uh, even wheat after Russia invaded Ukraine uh, or other food products that exploded after the pandemic, such as even chicken. And so heavy equipment that goes into farming or industrial manufacturing or even the processing of meats, I think a lot of that heavy equipment was purchased and invested in during the pandemic or commodities bull run cycles. And that may get reined in now. So I'm looking Caterpillar, John Deere as potential red flags here. But I also scratch my head and wonder, well, what about ASML? Are they going to produce less chip manufacturing equipment? Well, Barron's actually gives us a little bit of insight into this. And stay tuned because we still have to talk about that crazy uh, earnings call from, uh, uh, from a <laughs> corporate CEO. And it's a corporate CEO you're all uh, well aware of as well. So analysts expect aggregate CapEx for companies on the S&P 1500 index to rise about 7%, just over $1 trillion this year, according to Citigroup. That's down from a 21% increase in 2022. That's about a one-third as much growth. And it really kind of matches inflation. It is expected to rise just 2% in 2024. Now, this I think is interesting. One of the biggest things that I personally have learned during this cycle is that things take a lot longer than normal to adjust. It takes a lot longer than you'd expect for the market to bottom and for things like inflation to actually go away. That patience is frustrating, but it's also good for planning because if we're at the beginning of 2022 and we're thinking, all right, recession's coming within the next six months, but it actually potentially takes two years, it would be good to plan for that potential heads up. Now, weakness is expected in more economically sensitive sectors or those that see sales rise and fall with demand, economic demand. The consumer discretionary sector, which includes retail, restaurants, and hotels, is likely to see CapEx uh, drop rather by 3% this year. Now, that's interesting because retail, restaurants, hotels, and the like, which would include airlines, would make you wonder, wait a minute. Is it possible that that booming segment where jobs and wages are growing so strongly in retail, restaurants, airlines, hotels, hospitality, is it possible that those companies are going to rein back their expenditures on coffee machines, new stoves, uh, uh, you know, new equipment for their airplanes, whatever, as they try to maintain profit margins and as they start seeing competition at the top where they can't raise prices anymore? And the answer to this is likely yes. Consider, for example, what Darden, the uh, company that runs uh, Olive Garden, for example, is doing. They're talking almost solely about efficiency and productivity and doing more with less. Back a year ago, all they were doing was bragging about how they could raise prices. This conversation and narrative has completely turned on its head. Now, all of a sudden, 
this the companies are realizing they're in a situation where they're looking at the scoreboard and they're going, uh oh, lost the lead. That's not good. They don't want to lose the lead. They want to stay ahead, but they don't have PP anymore. They're not pricing power. So what do they do? They stop investing in their business and new equipment to try to maintain margins to appease their shareholders. <coughs> Excuse me. That is really borrowing from the future and giving to today. Because if you don't continue to reinvest in your business, your sales will probably suffer in the future. It's one of the reasons I'm personally bearish on, uh, on, on retail and hospitality and travel. I understand there's a boom in that now, but I'm bearish on it because I don't think it'll last. Uh, in fact, before we continue with this Barron's piece, I could tell you that there are already red flags that uh, some of these sectors are starting to get hit. Look at this. Here is a piece from Bloomberg talking about hotel rooms over $500 a night are too much even for rich travelers. And they talk about here, this may be a reflection of diminishing consumer confidence that inflated prices have not been accompanied by a proportionate increase in service quality. See, this actually directly relates to the Barron's piece and the argument that I'm making, where companies are starting to cut back to maintain whatever margins they have. They can't raise prices any more than they already have, but then people are going, what the hell? I'm paying a premium and y'all aren't even keeping up with expenditures and investments into your own business. The service is actually getting worse in certain cases, despite you paying a premium for certain products. The results come during what should be one of the busiest periods for travel booking. March is when people start finalizing summer plans and early birds get a jump on year-end holiday reservations. Okay. However, some 69% of poll participants said their maximum budget per hotel room was $500, while 24% were willing to spend $1,000. Still, 5% set their limit at $2,000, and 2% were willing to spend $3,000. Respondents include traders, portfolio managers, senior managers, and retail investors. Uh, although 500 to 1,000 might seem high, the range eliminates the fanciest hotels in major markets. Okay, so they kind of give a little bit of a breakdown here of, of this survey. And here is where they suggest a difference. I'm always interested in the delta, the difference of what's going on. The results of the survey suggest that luxury hotels, restaurants, and airlines will face increasingly irritated customers or consumers this summer. I don't even want to talk about how disgusting uh, uh, it, it, some hotels have gotten in that it's COVID's over. And they're still saying, yep, yep, sorry, no room service, you know, COVID. And I'm like, this is bullshit, <laughs> you know, it's crazy. Uh, anyway, uh, bank failures, fast inflation, elevated mortgage payments, and the softening labor market, especially in the high income sectors such as tech, could see tourists keep discretionary spending in check. This is a shift. We wrote a little note here. This is a shift. Uh, from what we heard from American Express, where individuals were still spending through the recession. That was in the American Express last quarter earnings call. And American Express appeals heavily to white collar and, and, and higher income individuals. So what's important about this? Well, what's important is we're starting to see complaints at the margin, at sort of the right side, uh, the right tail, maybe the higher income tail, where people are starting to go, okay, starting to run out of money here and starting to have to pull back. In my opinion, that's negative, not just for the companies that would be investing in CapEx, like we were talking about, the uh, hotels or airline manufacturers, 
but it's also a red flag that not only are we going to start seeing some of that softening at the lower consumer end, where we're probably going to see most of the softening and most of the hit, but we're starting at the margin to see some hit to that discretionary higher income phase. Uh, and that's something to pay attention to as well. This is why I always encourage people, make sure you have some kind of side hustle where you're making additional income. In fact, if you want to make YouTube videos, the easiest way, in my opinion, to do that is check out StreamYard. StreamYard is awesome. It's a fantastic platform. It's a sponsor for this segment. Uh, and they're a great platform where even if you're not live recording, you could use a web browser uh, to record yourself. Just go to metkevin.com StreamYard to learn more. You can use a web browser to record yourself uh, and actually pop up uh, different windows or different banners. For example, I'm still working on editing some of my own banners that we're, we threw into Photoshop, but I could throw, throw up a bunch of different banners here. Like here's one I throw around myself, metkevin.com slash free. I could throw up the little paid promotion thing. If I want, I could even throw up a little ticker at the bottom over here. It's a pretty cool platform. So go to metkevin.com slash streamyard and realize you could record your presentations, download them in HD, edit them even within the browser. Don't even need editing software anymore. They do it with you. So check out metkevin.com slash streamyard. It's been a lifesaver for me for the past few years, especially since I'm traveling so much. But going back to this and wanting to get into what this CEO is saying as well, I do think it's worth wrapping up on this piece right here before we transition, where there's this mention here in Bloomberg that retail investors see positive airline share drivers, but institutional and professional investors actually think the airlines are going to get hit pretty hard based on a lack of potential CapEx spending that we're starting to see at some of the airlines. Going back over here to Barron's, look at this. The reason companies are watching their big ticket spending is because they're preparing for more muted demand and profits. You know, there used to be this story uh, that uh, uh, that my father-in-law used to tell me. He goes, "Hey, Kevin, you know, there's this uh, there's uh, this story about uh, this father who uh, ran an antique shop off the highway, and uh, and the antique shop was doing very very well. It was like 2021, right? The antique shop is killing it. It's got growth. Its income is going up. Everything's fantastic. It's spending money on advertising. It's growing. It's going great." And then the son, who's college educated, says, well, dad, don't you realize we're going into a recession? You should cut back. And so the father-in-law says, oh, no. Uh, or, or the father says, we're going into a recession. That's, that's terrible. Well, we better cut our spending. Let's, let's cut our spending on that billboard that we have at the corner of the freeway that says exit here to our antique store. Let's, let's not spend the thousand bucks a month anymore on that billboard because we need to prepare for the recession. And so they cancel the billboard. Sure enough, people don't come to the antique store anymore because now the billboard is gone. And all of a sudden, income falls for the store. The father's like, my gosh, son, you were right. We're going into a recession. <laughs> and the point of the story is to argue that, good Lord, you know, some of, of the recessionary impact of the economy that we're in can very much be self-fulfilling. When businesses cut their CapEx spending, they can induce their own recession. Now, this is exactly why. Uh, and I try to be really neutral here. I'm just going to put my cards on the table and go, the reason I selected the cards that I did is because I think the cards that I chose, the stocks that I chose, are basically businesses that not only have pricing power, 
but are going to continue to invest in CapEx and growing their businesses during the recession, whereas other businesses are cutting. So I think consumer staples, restaurant, retail, hospitality, uh, all of those, uh, and, and even the industrials like the Johnson & Johnsons, the 3Ms, I think they're all looking at cut, 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 all of them because they're self-inducing basically their own recession. Whereas I think the companies that are not are first of all, the ones getting the stimmy checks, but second of all, the ones that are basically the growth companies of the next decade, the energies, the chips, uh, certain electric vehicle manufacturers, right? The, those are the ones I think have pricing power because first of all, they're getting massive stimmy checks from uh, the government. That really helps you continue to spend. And if you continue to spend, you continue to grow and you don't self-induce your recession. Think about it for a moment. If you're that antique store, Except instead of selling antiques, you sell solar inverters. And the government's like, hey, don't cut back on spending. Here's billions of dollars. Here's a fire hose of stimmy checks. Please keep investing in your business and spending, spending, spending. Those businesses are going to be like, all right. <laughs> like, I hate to call it like stupid proof because obviously I can't guarantee it. But I'm just saying, if I could shake people and go, come on, it's obvious. Go where the stimmy checks are going. <laughs> uh, anyway, so let's keep going with this Barron's piece here. And then we got to get to that corporate lash up. The reason companies are watching big ticket spending is because they're preparing for muted demand and profits. The Federal Reserve's interest rate hike started last year, but usually reduced demand and inflation with a delay. So companies have only begun responding as they reduce large investments once they see the beginnings of destruction to demand and sales. In fact, city data shows that in the past few months, banks have tightened their belts on lending as a result of consumer and business credit worsening, which should curb demand. Now, I'm actually surprised that we've actually started seeing some tightening on this because the banking crisis, according to NatWest and many banks, hasn't really started yet. But then again, they're talking about the past few months. So it is it is true that we have seen if if the line is down, like if I invert this, usually tightening credit standards is an upline. But if you invert it, it just psychologically makes a little bit more sense, like less availability of credit. The, the, the credit tightening has kind of been doing this anyway. I think there's this anticipation that the bank crisis would lead to more of a drop-off, but that hasn't happened yet. But yes, overall, larger banks have been uh, tightening over the last year. Uh, okay, so this reinforces stagnating earnings growth concerns. Stagnation is oftentimes what leads the stock market to turn red. The good news, though, is according to Barron's, the stock market has already reflected much of the economic challenges, and the S&P 1500, while above its low of the bear market, is still down 14% from late 2021's record high. The other good piece of news for stock investors is that lower CapEx means companies have more flexibility as to what they can do with their cash. They can return more cash to shareholders through dividends and buybacks. This, by the way, I think is a mistake. I really think it's a mistake for corporations to give more dividends right now. They should be investing more of their businesses, but that's okay. I still invest in some businesses that do buybacks as well. Look at Enphase, for example, which amplifies shareholder returns. The S&P 1500 free cash flow is expected to gain 9% this year because of reduced CapEx. That's fine, but what's that going to do to, return, uh, to earnings next year? The point is that investors should expect weak demand going forward, but that doesn't mean completely shy away from the stock market. Fine, but what do we want to keep in mind going forward. And where's this CEO lash out? Well, the first thing that I would keep in mind is, and it meant, I alluded to it earlier, and I want to just give you my opinion on, 
I was initially thinking, okay, Caterpillar, John Deere, but what about ASML? I think because of the CHIPS Act and the massive amount of factories that are going to be built in the next few years, and the fact that there's like a two-year wait to get a lot of this industrial equipment, I think companies like ASML are actually going to be just fine thanks to this, this massive inflationary stimulus checks uh, that, that are coming to not only electric vehicles, solar and such, but chips specifically. So now we have to get to, we already covered our sponsor for the segment, metkevin.com slash StreamYard. Please check them out. It really helps out the channel. If you go to metkevin.com slash StreamYard, check them out. They're fantastic. Try them. You get a free trial if you sign up anyway. But we now have to look at this earnings call where I have to say, I feel like this guy is totally depressed. I initially talked about this earnings call in a course member live stream, and we only briefly looked at it because we had multiple other analyses to do. I really enjoy doing the fundamental analysis with all the course members. Uh, but this one, I went into a little bit more detail, and I just want to read you some of the segments here. I'm going to read you some of the segments here of this business because I want you to see the sentiment change. Remember what happened when we went into this crisis in 2022. Everybody's talking about how they can raise prices and how great everything is, right? Well, now what I want you to see is the sentiment of the CEO of none other than Restoration Hardware. Yes, Restoration Hardware. So Stephen Forbes, an analyst, asked the CEO, can you talk about an inflection point within the business? And here is, are some of his responses. Sure. I think based on the times we're in and uncertainty we're facing, whether it's the continued rise of interest rates or the next bank or two that get hit, it's hard to be anything but conservative right now. I think it would be foolish to be not just from the perspective of disappointing investors, but disappointing ourselves and possibly making decisions and investments before we could see around the next corner. You hear this? Rain in. Don't spend more on CapEx. Rain in. Get small. Get scared is what he's saying because we haven't seen around the corner yet. Because instead, he talks about it's a very unsettling feeling. It's like the days of Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers. And we're just waiting for the next shoe to drop. It's very unknown right now. So we believe that there will be an inflection point in the second half. Notice he doesn't say good. We don't know what it is. What will, what will the economic environment be in the second half? What would be the condition of the banking industry in the second half? Where will interest rates be? What if inflation is persistent? All one has to do is Google the history of the Fed's funds rate and zoom into the 70s and 80s and look how many times the Federal Reserve brought inflation under control. Yes, yes, Mr. CEO. Let's completely ignore that in the 70s we left the gold standard and we let inflation expectations unanchor and the Fed had a start-stop mentality that led to a lack of confidence for the Federal Reserve. Let's completely ignore those things. And let's just talk about the fear of the 70s and 80s, how basically we have to not spend money anymore because we don't know what's around the corner. This is literally a, a CEO that wakes up and probably loses sleep at night and then wakes up in the morning trembling that this company is going to poopsie doopsie. This is restoration hardware, by the way. And I mean, if you just look at their earnings uh, right here, you can see their margins are starting to get hit. 
Now, over here on the right side, you've got uh, their past margins and their income from operations at 14.5%, way down from the over 20% we used to uh, uh, see. Their net income is down about an average of about three percentage points over here compared to the past reporting quarters. So you can tell there's probably, there's a numbers reason why as well. But let's keep going with what he's saying because he starts getting a little angrier. There's not, there's not, oh my God. Uh, hello, grammar. Uh, there are not many people. Do you know they should really have a word there, right? Like it should be there, like that. That should be a word. It should be pronounced there. There are not many people on the planet. See, that would be good grammar, a shortening of there are, but that's how it should be written. But that doesn't exist. Instead, people get lazy and then they just say theirs because there's no contraction for there are. <laughs> that's kind of weird, isn't it? Uh, anyway, uh, in, in this context. Okay, so continuing. Uh, I don't know why we go on these grammar tangents. There's, oh God, there are not many people on the planet in levels of authority and responsibility that were old enough to experience those times. And I think having a conservative view and being prepared, having a strong balance sheet and trying to see the whole board and all of the moves is basically prudent. Okay, that's fine. So he's making the argument that we're so scared at restoration hardware, we're gonna basically compare this to the 70s and 80s and, and try to buckle up as much as possible, which is not a bad idea. It is not a bad idea to say, uh, hey, let's let's pause uh, and let's make sure we could rein in to make sure we're not uh, running away and spending all of our money and not being conservative to where then we have to get emergency de debt, right? That would be very bad. I'm sorry if you're sending me promotional emails every day, uh, if not every day, multiple times a day, calling them different things. You want to call your promotion something different? That's interesting. He's starting his little lash out right now. We're not pushing the panic buttons on promotion. I wouldn't call it panic kind of promotions. It's really trying to hang on to the illusion of where the business was in the pandemic, right? So in other words, he's starting to allude to how they are different from other businesses. They're saying, we're not gonna do promotions because we're restoration hardware and we're fancy and better than promotions. And then he's starting to compare to other businesses that are sending promotional emails every day, sometimes multiple times a day. He can smell the fear at other companies because they're freaking out and they gotta get more sales. Well, take a look at this. I have never, ever seen a CEO pull this one. So listen to this. So, and that's even in this environment and the product that's on its way is by far the best work we've done. Talking up their business, okay, great. How they're not, how they have a value proposition and they don't have to send all these disruptive promotions to people that are below us. Uh, it is, wait, what? Uh, and I think that will be disruptive, not only to the high end, it's going to be disruptive to the people that are below us in the market, just because we have the scale to buy in stock inventory and many people don't. In other words, you really have a CEO who's literally like, we don't spam people with promotions. We aren't going to be suffer like the people who are below us because we're the high end corporation. And then listen to this, literally goes on to name a company by name and bag on them. You ready for this? Here we go. The platforms that are out there today, whether it's a Wayfair or others, again, I understand they don't take the position we have on inventory, so they can't really buy in volume because they're the paupers, they're the poor normies. So, continuing with the quote here, so they, because they can't buy in volume, they can't drive efficiency. So a lot of people say, well, aren't you worried about platform? So I think platforms ought to be worried about us, you know, like those website platforms. They should be worried about restoration hardware. 
anywhere. There is not a lot, there is not a platform that made a dollar yet or anything. I mean, Wayfair made money during the peak of the pandemic, for God's sake. No. And look, may Wayfair be able to hake their prices and make it? I don't know. All I know is, we've got a really great model. We've got, I think, the most compelling vision in the industry. <laughs> the guy is literally dumping on Wayfair, saying they only made money <laughs> during the pandemic. And basically, restoration hardware is so much better because they have scale and, and they have a reputation and they have a brand. And uh, But at the same time, we're worried about the 1970s recession and we're worried that, listen to this, I think it's more uncertain today than 2008 and 2009. If you didn't have the inflation problem that we had today and you didn't have the political unrest, maybe it would be interesting, but, but you do. And so uh, if there isn't a complete crash, uh, which a complete crash would look like the 70s or 80s, uh, which would ultimately mean it would take over a decade to recover from the recession, uh, then, then maybe we could pray for not a complete crash. But this is what we want to prepare for. So, I kid you not, Restoration's hardware CEO is losing his SH90. He is literally losing it. Lashing out at the competition, lashing out at promotional emails, and lashing out that basically we're walking into the 70s and 80s. And as a result, they're going to pull back on spending. That's crazy. So look at this. In a typical environment, in a slowing market, there's usually one thing to hit us at once. But multiple things are hitting us at once now. <laughs> look, look at this. L listen to this. Yeah, I think you've got, you've got about a 20% margin floor, not in the worst housing market though. Right now we're in the worst luxury housing market I've ever seen. The one of the worst housing markets anybody has ever seen. I think in the third quarter, luxury housing, fourth quarter luxury. If you think about where luxury housing has been, it was down 18% in the first quarter, down 28% in the second quarter, down 38% in the third quarter, and now reportedly down 45% in the fourth quarter, which means because you're talking about months, they're kind of going down. It probably means the last month of the fourth quarter was down close to 50%. <laughs> then you've got the refinance market, which nobody's refinancing, so nobody's able to buy new furniture. And that means the market's really down like 80 or 90% or 70 or 80%. <laughs> oh, man. This is... By far the most comical but also kind of scary earnings call I have ever seen. This is the CEO of Restoration Hardware. But then, but then listen to this. We're cutting through the noise. That's what we're doing. We're not panicked. We're not nervous. <laughs> the biggest, biggest joke ever. And then, then he even, he even goes on to say this. Do I wish yelling, we'll just tell everybody we're gonna backstop everybody's savings and dance? In other words, do I wish we could just go back to the stimulus days? Of course! <laughs> but I think instead we might be facing more of the 1970s. <laughs> this is by far uh, <laughs> uh, the, uh, I, I don't know whether to be, to be scared uh, or, or to think the guy has just lost it. But uh, you're definitely seeing a CEO here that's a lot more nervous uh, than uh, I've really seen anywhere. And I have to say, first of all, anybody buying restoration hardware stuff in this market, 
probably needs to look at themselves in the mirror and go, why am I not buying stocks right now? And instead spending, like, why am I spending money on this expensive furniture anyway? So first things first, you shouldn't be buying crop at restoration hardware in this market. Do the, save that for a bull run when you trim some of your highly profitable stocks and then go splurge on stupid furniture. <laughs> in a bear market, it's not the time to go shopping at restoration hardware. First of all, my advice. Second of all, I think the CEO is seeing a disproportionate impact because I think people are smart and realize the worst thing to do is spend money like this at restoration hardware. And so he's seeing the writing on the wall that this company is going poopy doopsies. Uh, and it's probably gonna be a while before it recovers. Part of me, after that fear, is, is almost tempted to short the stock. Uh, now, in fairness, the stock has already come down substantially. And maybe that's why he's freaking out. Let's go over here to Weeble, which is the platform that I like using, whether it's for trading or looking at the charts. If you go to Weeble, and you look at the pandemic low of 2020, we're at 73 bucks. We're way up from that, right? We're 3X from that. But look at what we're down from, 744, and we hit a low of what, 208 roughly? So we're sitting in the bottom section here of the Fibonacci, and frankly, this company might actually break lower. It's had a very rapid decline already, so I don't know how much is left to squeeze out of this lemon in terms of a short. But if you're looking for a CEO that's panicking, I'll tell you, I don't think there's any company that is more fearful right now than Restoration Hardware. And unfortunately, it's kind of a slap in the face to what American Express was bragging about. And maybe it's a leading indicator that American Express is next, which some businesses, by the way, have you ever heard of this? They call American Express American Surpress. <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway. Uh, so um, I think that's when small businesses kind of get frustrated at the fees they get charged. But anyway, so American Express talks about people spending through the recession. Well, if people are using American Express at uh, uh, <laughs> Restoration Hardware, then you might have a reason to say maybe American Express might be next. So American Express is AXP stock, and you can see they might have a little bit more on the FIB retracements to go down. So if I adjust the FIBs over here, let's do a quick adjustment. Uh, keep in mind, we talk about fundamental analysis uh, every single day in the courses on Building Your Wealth link down below, whether it's for stocks or real estate or entrepreneurship. Check those out. I, I think you'll enjoy them. We even have Buy Now, Pay Later available. So take a look at this. For, or for American Express, we've definitely come off some of the highs following the banking crisis over here. Uh, this is the week chart as well, by the way. So we've been teetering around this 162 level. It is possible, in my opinion, that American Express could go right back to these about 145 levels. If not even, I actually don't think we're going to test the 129, but 145 would be reasonable. So if I was looking for a short, I'd probably be more likely to hit uh, American Express as opposed to uh, Restoration Hardware if I thought at the margin we were going to see reduced spending by rich people. Uh, because really, that's what matters. It's that discretionary credit card style spend at the margin. I think businesses uh, or, or uh, like chip companies or, or otherwise, they're still going to spend money on chips. But I don't know if they're using American Express or Restoration Hardware as much anymore. So in my opinion, you're starting to see the cracks, not just on the lower end, but now you're finally starting to see the upper end cracks. 
And I'll tell you, I it, like, it, it, look, I'm a licensed financial advisor. Every single day I try to read earnings calls. This is a personal financial advice, but I try to read an earnings call a day and I have never seen a CEO lash out like this. I have seen pessimism and uncertainty, but this, wild. I have not seen this before. So anyway, with that said, make sure to check out metkevin.com slash Make sure you get yourself 12 free stocks by going to metkevin.com slash paid promotions. Make sure you get yourself life insurance in as little as five minutes by going to metkevin.com slash life. And obviously, check out the programs on building your wealth, wherein you can now get in with buy now pay later and get lifetime access. So, if you found this useful, also consider sharing the video. Thanks so much. All right, let's listen in here. A former Wall Street Journal alum, and I'm also also a former Moscow Times alum. So right. I hold a lot of there, but for the grace of God, Steve, with his family. Yeah, exactly. You yeah. were there in in harm's way too. The, the Wall Street Journal's yeah. Twitter account, all all about uh, Evan, and uh, yeah, we. Is there a week before he met with with any lawyers? I mean, I would. Uh, that that is a brave, uh, intrepid um, guy that you've got there, and uh, you know. Hope, with Putin, we don't even know what's What are they saying? Yeah, I, I, Crispy, I know that says promotion. We kind of have sort of at this point left it because it's kind of funny. <laughs> Although it's probably more embarrassing than funny. Um, but yes, I need to change that. In fact, just for you, I will change it right now. Hold on. <laughs> Tom will explain that to you. Uh, John but, Carson, about twelve ten midnight, yeah. I would say. But uh, <laughs> if I ask her, you know, have you made up your mind? I'm sure she's going to say we're waiting for the data. And it was uh, like Jim Bullard told me on Monday. Right. He said we don't have to make a decision till May third. So why would we, given all the data that's still out there? The insight, Mike, I've had in this hugely uncertain blur, and your great work, may I say, with the Federal Reserve of Boston, of St. Louis. Uh, Cardinals game you went to was I actually was watching the Cardinals looking behind home plate to see if you could see, see if you were I don't get paid seats. enough you're the only one that can sit in those seats and now Cleveland but you all right these guys are being boring okay all right everybody crispy crispy pollo is now responsible for me fixing the spelling paid promotion see I already had the graphic ready I just needed to load it in um, I actually I needed to do it anyway, but now we're just gonna blame you for being the catalyst for it. <laughs> it's okay. Thank you for that. You're right. I've needed to change that. Newer people to the channel might not know that uh, uh, the goal is to help to help convince you that investing is really good. Maybe I need to play some conversion music. <laughs> I love this thing so much. What? <laughs> Kind of stupid, but it's also kind of funny. All right, let's listen That's for the stage for where we're heading because of tighter lending conditions. Is that how Fed officials look at it? Are they going to speak to that in not only the meeting, but when you talk to Loretta Mester in just well, a couple minutes? Yeah, they know that uh, the data are the Loretta Mester essentially. They're looking at all kinds of data. There are more timely private sector data sets that they're looking at these days, and that the government is using. They have incorporated some of those into uh, the BEA and BLS uh, numbers that come out. But uh, 
they know they, they're looking backwards, so they have to extrapolate forward. Uh, the big uh, number, the ISM services, uh, core services, ex-housing, um, that's in the, uh, the conference board's index of lagging indicators. So while that is an important number for them, it is not something that is particularly timey, timely at the moment. We've got to get to the balance of risk question, Mike. There's been a belief for much of the last year that the risk of doing too little outweighed the risk of doing too much. Given the nature of the shock in the last month, does the risk of doing too much now outweigh the risk of doing too little? Well, that's a good question uh, for President Mester that uh, I can put to her. I think that they would have told you uh, at the last Fed meeting, Jay Powell would have said that the balance of risks is uh, – very finely balanced at this point. We don't know, and they don't know, whether we're going to see a significant tightening in credit because it had already <laughs> happened. The last senior loan officer survey out in January showed 43% of the banks had tightened their credit standards. So do they need to go much further, or was this really about... All right, this guy's kind of boring. Um, okay, let's go look at... Did ADP numbers come out? I think they may have. Uh, I thought they'd come out at 5.30, but maybe they came out at 5.15. Jerks! Oh! <laughs> Holy schmokas! Oh, man! Woo! <laughs> we, we, <laughs> we got some, uh, some, uh, talking to do here about those numbers. Holy smokes. Okay. Well, uh, 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 I don't know what to tell you if it's good or bad. <laughs> uh, we'll go through it and we'll look at the details here. Uh, wow, that that's a shocker. All right, uh, stand by for the shocker. All right, here we go. Well, the ADP employment report just came out. It is the precursor of the data that we expect to get on Friday, which is the official Bureau of Labor Statistics employment report. And wow, this ADP report was a shocker. Now look, I actually really like the ADP report because I think it is much more accurate than the government's version. I think the government's version has a lot of manipulation in it from seasonal adjustments and potentially bureaucratic influences that we don't know all the details to. That's not to say the private report doesn't have any bias either, but I think it's important to look at both reports and mostly look at what were markets expecting and what did we actually get and then look at the details. And the ADP employment change this morning, well, let's just say it- Lost the lead. Yeah, uh, the survey X, well, let me first tell you the last report. The last report was 242. That was revised up a little bit by 19,000 jobs. The reason you do that is you get some more data and you're like, okay, let's adjust the prior up a little, right? So you get 242 adjusted up a little bit to 261 for February. February, okay, fine. Well, now we got the shocker. The survey here was 210,000 jobs, which was already 32,000 jobs under the prior report. But we actually missed that by about 30%. We came in at 145. Uh, actually, that's, uh, that's even smaller. 145 was the actual report. Uh, that is a miss. Uh, yeah, a miss of about 31%. A 31% miss. 145,000 jobs versus 210,000. Now, we need to go through the actual report 
But that kind of miss makes me want to put up the sponsor for today's video, metkevin.com slash life. Get life insurance in as little as five minutes, or if you like producing videos without having a bunch of fancy recording software and you want to do it all from your browser, go to metkevin.com slash StreamYard. You can edit together your recordings all together. Uh, you can not only record in HD, you could share screens, you could put up banners, you could put up uh, little scrolling tickers at the bottom. The amount of things you could do with StreamYard is absolutely phenomenal, and every single day I'm still learning what to put up and how to do it. It's phenomenal. Like, you can even throw up comments, which is kind of cool. So check that out, metkevin.com slash streamer. Okay, let's take a look at this. ADP National Employment Report, private sector employment increased by 145,000 jobs in March, and annual pay was up 6.9% year over year. I want to see how that compares, because I'm pretty sure that's down from the over 7% we've been used to. So let's go right to that, because I think that's pretty important. Pay insights. Here we go. Okay, yep, 7.2% was the jobs gain or, or wage gain in February. That fell to 6.9% uh, for job stayers. For people who were switching their job, pay growth was 14.2%, down from 14.4%. So again, no indication of a wage price spiral, but again, still a sign that wages are growing. Here's the median change and where you're seeing the highest wage gains. This is also not a shocker. 9.6% for leisure and hospitality. Services, 6.9 for other. Education, 7.2. Business services, 6.4. Uh, and these are year-over-year -year numbers. So those are, those are still pretty high, right? Absolutely still too high. But let's go ahead and see if we can compare these to the prior month just so we could get a little bit of a look and see where we're potentially getting some of the softening. This is uh, this is the report that was released Feb 1. I need the uh, I need the early March report. Uh, okay, we'll, we'll get the early March report. Let's actually let's go ahead and look at Feb. So here's Feb just to compare. This is was the Feb report which would be the January. Actually better. It gives us even more of a comparison window. So look at this. Leisure and hospitality was 10.1. Now it's 9.6, okay, that's good. You've got education, 7.2, same at 7.2. Professional business services, 6.9, now at 6.4, good. Financial activities, now 6.8, uh, and it was 7.4. Information was 6.6, now it's 6.3. And trade and utilities was 7.5, now it's 7%. So you're definitely seeing that pay growth uh, slowing. It's still high year over year, uh, and you're seeing the month over month numbers inflecting, uh, but they don't actually give us the month over month numbers, right? The way you have to kind of think about this is a chart where it's like pay growth went up, and then what you're trying to do is you're trying to pull down this moving average, and then you're comparing to it year over year, right? And when this starts going down, it takes a year for you to actually kind of start seeing that pull down. So it's like you're pulling down on a 12-month moving average. So you're not expecting to see very, very quick declines. So I think this is good. Across the board, I don't think there was any sector here that was positive. The only sector that was flat compared to January was education. And again, that's year over year on, on, on your moving average that you're trying to yoink down, right? Uh, so, so in my opinion, that's actually a good thing. 
So again, this is the ADP report from March. Uh, I want to go through as well the projections for Friday for the uh, employment report. That'll be released at 5.30 a.m. I'll be traveling uh, on Friday, so I will be streaming it live. As usual, we'll be streaming it via StreamYard. So shout out to StreamYard. I'm at kevin.com slash StreamYard. But what I, what I really want you to think about is uh, the fact that the jobs report is very important because the one thing that reminds us of the 1970s is a wage price spiral as well as unanchored inflation expectations. I guess that's two things instead of one thing. But this jobs report is a consistent, in my opinion, with a softening economy. Now, I want to show you what ChatGPT has to say about our JOLTS report from yesterday as well. Now, that I think is actually really interesting. So prepare for the JOLTS report in just a moment. Uh, and the ChatGPT response to the JOLTS report, put together not by me, but actually put together by a Goldman Sachs analyst. You ready for this? All right. So first, let's hit this number right here. So this right here is our uh, change in private employment. Where are we seeing job losses? Well, we're seeing job losses, which we'll do with a pink color here, in manufacturing, financial activities, professional and business services. Where are we seeing the bulk of the gains? Leisure and hospitality. And you are seeing some mining and construction, which these are some surprises that we're seeing construction, for example, still booming. That could be because of some of the government stimulus into uh, the Inflation Reduction Act or the Jobs Act, uh, or the CHIPS Act rather, not the Jobs Act. Let's see here, we'll get some more details here. I like looking at this detail here, change in establishment by size. It seems like the large, wow, this is actually really surprising. It seems like large establishments aren't actually the ones getting as many jobs. It's actually smaller. The smallest are the ones where the job gains are, medium and small. That's surprising. You're really seeing the, the larger medium and the larger have, have barely job gains or potentially negative. That is very surprising that the smaller ones are reporting the job gains. And let's look at uh, regionally. The South is losing the most jobs as well as the West. Wow, that's actually really surprising as well because I thought like Florida was supposed to still be killing it. But South Atlantic, East and Central, this would be like your, your North Carolinas, uh, West, South, Central, I'm assuming that would be like Oklahoma, Texas. Uh, anyway, negatives over here. The Midwest is actually where you're getting the job gains as well as the Northeast. Now, this could be your Idaho, Ohio, uh, uh, potentially because of jobs data, and then you've got the Northeast over here. All right, that's interesting. Now, what did ChatGPT have to say? Now, this was mind-blowing in my opinion. So, ChatGPT basically got fed the JOLTS data, and take a look at this. This is an analyst report from Goldman Sachs here. Goldman Sachs, which just released this this morning, I fed ChatGPT with a selection of JOLTS data and asked it whether the JOLTS data was consistent with the decelerating or accelerating economy. This is what it came up with, colon, we are on borrowed time. <laughs> what? I don't want to hear that. Don't tell us we're on borrowed time. That's a terrible thing to say. <laughs> but uh, that's what they said. <laughs> so let's see why they think uh, we're on borrowed time. Uh, it uh, It's a little scary. So what do we have here? 
This data is more, okay, they fed it in and it says this data is more consistent with a decelerating economy. A decelerating economy is typically characterized by a slowdown in growth and the data provided indicates several signs of such a slowdown. This is ChatGPT's response, folks. It says, a decrease in job, op job openings. Total private job openings decreased 559,000 from January to February, suggesting fewer opportunities, fewer opportunities for job seekers. Decrease in hires, indicating companies might be more cautious about expanding. And a decrease in layoffs, uh, it would be a uh, usually a positive sign for the economy, right? However, when combined with the decrease in job openings and hirings, it could suggest that companies are more hesitant to let employees go due to the uncertainty of finding new hires in a potentially slowing economy. Womp, womp, womp. ChatGPT suggesting, uh-oh, maybe the Fed is doing a little bit of too much over-tightening. So, with that said, make sure you come back to the Friday jobs data report. But this ADP report suggests slowing wage inflation, no wage price spiral. It does suggest that the Fed may be over tightening and we could be surprised to the downside with how quickly jobs growth plummets and how quickly the unemployment rate rises. Remember what Elizabeth Warren said, the Fed's projecting 1% increase in unemployment? Well, usually after a 1% increase, you end up getting two. And that ends up hurting more. Gain the lead. Oh, wrong button. Lost the lead. <laughs> anyway, uh, okay, so that ends up having uh, the end to the job segment. Let's listen into Loretta Mester here for a sec. Let's see what she has to say. And uh, let's see actually if I can do this. Let's go Loretta Mester. She's on Doomberg right now. Give me one second to get her started. Does it let me go back more? Uh, let's me go to here. Oh, I think this is roughly when it started. Great. Just out 145,000. I know there's questions about their methodology or what it means, but what do you take away from it? Well, we have to look at all the data. So that's a data point that we're going to look at. We're going to get the employer report on Friday. So there's just a lot of data coming in. And we're going to use that to assess not only where the economy has been, but where it's going. Because as you know, it's about where the economy's going that's really important for setting monetary policy. Well, that was one of the questions that they were just asking me in uh, uh, the surveillance uh, studio. How do you know what you're looking for when the data are in the rearview mirror? Well, you know, the data in the real view is important because it tells you something about where the economy is going. So you don't throw that data away, but you also have to do a lot of other kind of reconnaissance. So. You know, the nice thing about having Federal Reserve Banks across the country is that we can talk to um, contacts in our districts, you know, whether it be labor market um, contacts or business contacts, to really find out what's happening on the ground at the moment. And that information, anecdotal information, is very helpful as well. And then we do surveys and other kinds of more timely information. So all of that goes into sort of formulating monetary policy. So. I think it's wrong to think like, oh, we're looking only in the rearview mirror at data that's from a month ago or two months ago. That data is actually helpful for looking at trends, and then we also uh, augment that with other data about what's really happening on the ground, on Main Street, for businesses that have to cope with this economy. Well, what's happening on Main Street? Yeah. Uh, it's it kind of two parts. In general, what are you hearing? And then what are you hearing from bankers in your district about uh, credit quality? Right. 
So credit quality is still fine. Um, bankers are telling us that that isn't really a, a problem. It might have okay. ticked up a, a tad, but it certainly is still low, very low by historical standards. So that isn't a, a focus now. Um, the bankers have, you know, struggled with retaining deposits during the March um, tensions in the banking industry, but that has stabilized since then. In terms of credit, in terms of credit um, standards, you know they had already been tightening credit standards as interest rates went up. So they're continuing to do that. They're continuing to monitor, um, you know, their their customers. They're continuing to monitor going forward in terms of making sure that they're well positioned for the economy with higher interest rates. In terms of the businesses themselves, of course, they are preparing right for. I would say some slowdown in the economy, but a lot of the firms are still telling us that their conditions are still pretty good. They're worried about the economy in general, and so they're being a little defensive now. Um, some pullback in some of their investment spending, but again, it doesn't feel like everyone thinks that we're going to have a deep recession. It's just they're trying to be more cautious so that they're well prepared for whatever happens in the economy in the future. Well, the recession argument that a lot of people are making sort of depends on the idea that the full weight of all of the cumulative weight of your rate increases hasn't hit the economy yet. Plus, we throw in the banking, maybe tightening credit standards a little more. Uh, are you worried about the second half of the year? Well, I do think that growth this year is going to be well below trend. And you're right. The banking tensions certainly typically... Hey, I'm going to keep listening, but I'm going to keep playing it. I, I, I got to hit the restroom really quick, but I'm going to keep listening. <laughs> uh, how do I hit play? Play. When you see that happening, you do see banks pull back um, on their credit standards and tightening, tight their, tighten their credit standards. We don't know right now either the duration of those effects from what happened in March or how strong those effects will be. So. We do expect that to happen, but right now we're in that time where we're assessing, talking to the bankers, looking at things like the SLUS, which is the uh, Senior Loan Officer Opinion Survey, to get a really good sense of where bankers are. As I said, even before the March tensions in the industry, banking industry, you know, the banks were pulling back and tightening credit standards. And that's kind of normal, that's the normal flow of monetary policy tightening throughout the economy. That's one of the ways it gets pushed out into the economy. So, so that's fine. That's kind of what we are intending in terms of making sure that we can slow down demand so that we get a better balance between demand and supply and, and reduce those price pressures. And now we're assessing whether the tensions in the banking industry have augmented that. And that's part of what the evaluation will be as we go in to the next FOMC meeting in terms of calibrating monetary policy. Well, you're in New York. Uh, the, all the big trading desks are only a few blocks away from us, and they're calibrating recession right now, and that you're going to be cutting rates not once, two, or three times, but four times by next January. Uh, how do you process that view versus yours? Well, you know, we've seen Good question. periods where the markets have one view of what's going to happen in the economy, and the Fed has another view. And, you know, we certainly take information from that. You know, we, we oh, yeah. see what they're doing and we're saying, okay, that's their view of what's happening. We have our own forecasts. We just put out forecasts at the last FOMC meeting. Um, yeah. And if you look at those, we did say that growth this year was going to be 
very much below um, Point trend four. growth. And so I think we see things a little bit differently in terms of what the appropriate monetary policy is given where the economy is and where it's going. We certainly are focused on inflation and making sure that inflation gets back down to 2% over time. Well, is the idea over of full rate cuts in the next year crazy? Well, it certainly isn't my policy path. I mean, I think we're going to have to go a little bit higher from, from where we are, um, a little bit more, and then hold there for some time in order to make sure that inflation is on that sustainable downward yeah. path to 2%. Yeah. That doesn't mean we're going to continue to raise rates until inflation gets back to 2%. We're going to be sort of calibrating in order to see that inflation is going to move down. And my own forecast is that it will take some time to get inflation back down. But I, you know, I think we're going to make some appreciable um, progress this year and then continue to make progress next year and then hit 2% in 2025. What's your trajectory 25. for inflation? Uh, where can we end the 25. year and how fast would we get there? Yeah, so I'm about three and three quarters percent um, by the end of this year. Continued progress next year, maybe two and three quarters and then 2% in 2025. And I think that's a good progress. Um, but you got to remember, we've been at high inflation, well over 2% for quite some time. And that's why it's imperative that we continue to make progress and that we continue on this path. Now, we're going to be judicious about it. We're not going to, you know, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater, as they say. We're going to make sure that we're making good judgments along the way. But it is crucial that we get inflation back down in a timely way to 2%. Well, you're talking about not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but the old adage is the Fed tightens until something breaks. What would you say the balance of risks is now between something breaking on the growth side and unemployment side and inflation? Yeah. Well, I'm hoping we don't tighten until th something breaks. I don't think that's the, the strategy that I would like to follow. I think we've got to be judicious about it and try to calibrate our policy in the, in the correct way. I mean, we've made a lot of progress in terms of where we started when we started raising rates. We were at zero, right? And we've come a long way. So we're making progress on getting to where we need to get to. And my own view is that we're going to have to go a little bit further, but we're certainly well on the way of where we need to get to. And then we hold for a while. And yes, we can recalibrate our policy if the economy evolves differently than we're anticipating. And that's the, the nature of monetary policy making. You want to be able to take all the information in, set a policy path that is consistent with getting back to full employment, maximum employment, and price stability. And then if the economy evolves differently than you anticipate, then you might have to adjust your policy path. And you need to be open to that. And especially in a, in a situation like this where there is high uncertainty. There were high, high uncertainty in the economy before we had the tensions in the banking system. That tension in the banking system, the stresses in, the bank, in, those, in those banks has added more uncertainty. And so you've got to be willing to sort of take in more information, look at it, and reassess if, if need be in terms of where policy needs to get to. Well, you said we should do a little more. Uh, the consensus median dot was 5.1, which would be one more rate move. Right. Uh, are you in the group that was above that? Yeah. How far do you think we Well, I go? see a little more um, inflation pressures than the median in the um, SEP from the December SEP. So I probably am a little bit higher than 
the median dot. But again, I'm open to making sure that we're setting policy to get inflation back down to 2%. So I'm open in terms of let's take in what the economy is telling us about where it's going. Let's make sure that we get inflation on that sustainable downward path. So I'm not, you know, we've made a lot of progress, and I'm willing to sort of let's take it in and look at where the economy is going. Close. My own view is that we'll have to go above 5%, but exactly how much, precisely how much, and precisely how long it has to stay above, we've got to be open to allowing the economy to tell us. Is uh, rate increase on May 3rd a certainty basically locked in at this point? Too soon. Um, I heard the promo before. You're right. I'm going to tell you that we have a lot more data to get to. And um, we'll see as we get there what, what's happening in the economy. Again, the economy is going to tell us where it wants us to get to. Well, Loretta Mester says I'm right. And so that's a great place to stop the interview. Thank you very much for joining us today here in New York. And we'll look on. Okay. So I just did a little. Uh, graph. Uh, well, it's not really a graph, a little spreadsheet that I think would be kind of interesting to go through. But let's uh, let's recap some, some of this briefly here and uh, give sort of my opinion on this. Uh, okay, so let's get started. Well, I just did some really scientific work off the back of what Loretta Mester just said. It's so scientific, it took about a whole 30 seconds to put together, but it is so important because it gives you the trajectory of what might be going through the Federal Reserve's mind. Remember the concept of flexible average inflation targeting? That's F-A-I-T, known as FATE. And FATE is really a way of suggesting, hey, if inflation ran below trend for a few years before the pandemic, ran above trend now, you know, years after the pandemic, how long are we willing to wait to get back to 2% inflation? Well, back in the 1980s, the Fed was willing to wait 20 years to get down to 2% inflation. In fact, they used a concept known as opportunistic inflation to help drive them there. And Loretta Mester just suggested that we could get inflation down to 3.25% by the end of this year, 2.75, maybe 2.5% by the end of 24, and 2% by 2025. That really gives us a three-year run rate to actually get inflation back down. Now, obviously, these numbers are pretty high. So what I did is I wanted to see how flexible average inflation targeting could work by basically looking at about the last 12 years and about the next 12 years and then creating an average. So you could play with this all you want by remaking something like this pretty simply. And then I'll tell you what Loretta Mester just said. But I thought this was a quite interesting experiment. Take a look, see on screen here. This is a chart. And basically what I did is between 2010 and uh, 2019, I just quickly wrote down inflation of 1.7. It might be plus or minus in various different times. Sometimes it was 1.9, sometimes it was 1.6. But for just really quick math to show you the concept of this, if inflation was 1.7 for these 10 years, and then it popped up a little bit in 2020, a little bit more in 2021, peak in 2022, and then slowly down by the end of 23, 24, 25, the way Loretta Mester assumes. And then we actually go to some years of uh, disinflation where maybe inflation sitting at 1.5%. 
Well, if we have 1.5% all the way through 2035 via a, say, Nike swoosh style recovery, inflation would actually have averaged over the past 25 years in that case, 2.21%. And the cool thing is you could actually play with this a bit. Because if we suggested, well, what if AI creates so much disinflation or even deflation that we actually end up getting to, say, 1% inflation by 2028 and we throw that in? Well, now all of a sudden we start knocking on the door of closer to 2%. So you could see that even if we have really high inflation over here, if in the future we have lower inflation, where maybe even we go to uh, a 0.71, let's say, instead of this, Look at that. We start knocking on the door of maybe even under 2% inflation averaged over a 25-year period. This is where the Federal Reserve could take the long view and suggest, hey, look, inflation was indeed transitory. Because if we had inflation that looked like this, uh, and then I want to talk to you about what Loretta Mester just said, uh, we would have inflation that would, on a line chart, look like this. Uh, so here's just a very quick chart. And if anybody looked at this chart, they would probably make the argument that, yeah, obviously inflation was transitory. Y'all printed an insane amount of money. It created insane inflation. But then the world of artificial intelligence and innovation took over, and we actually ended up with less inflation in the future than we did previously. And then the Fed looks at this and says, uh... Average 2%, good enough for us. <laughs> it's entirely possible. Now, obviously, the concern is that if inflation stays sticky, this becomes a problem. Because if the goal of the Fed is 2% inflation, and you end up with, let's say, 4, 4, 3.5, 3.5, 3.2, 3.2, then what you end up having is what's known as a fat tail, right? And a fat tail would be really bad. Because look, that's a fat tail on the right. See how that is no longer a quick drop. It's no longer transitory. This would be an example of sticky. This would be an example of potentially inflation expectations becoming unanchored and us getting Paul Volcker. So I personally think you want to evaluate your investing strategy based on how you think this chart is going to evolve. Do you think the chart is going to be the first version I showed you? Or this version where you have a fat right tail? Well, uh, which would be higher inflation. Well, that is something for essentially you to consider. And if you're thinking, okay, fat right tail, then probably all bets are off. You're probably looking at gold, cash, uh, you know, high dividend style stocks, defensives, going into recession, recession lasting longer, deep recession, two year recession, whatever. If you think this is going to be more of that quick up and then down, then you're probably going to want to be where growth is during a shallow recession or a slower growth time, which tends to be innovative and growth stocks being supported by stimulus checks like energy, EVs, and chips. Okay, so what did Loretta Mester... Oh, wow, I butchered her name there. So what did Loretta Mester just say? And what does what she just said have to do with sort of this thesis here about flexible average inflation targeting? Well, of course, the very first thing she said is Kevin makes these videos using the power of StreamYard, and you could as well. Use StreamYard by going to metkevin.com streamyard. 
It's our paid promotion here. StreamYard is what I've been using for over two years to produce content during the craziness of going live for emergency press conferences with the Fed or presidents or whatever, putting comments up on screen, throwing banners on screen, putting little ticker bars at the bottom. You could use this to edit videos as well. You could use it to uh, interview people and then export the videos, share screens, Everything is possible with StreamYard that I've ever needed for streaming, and I'll tell you, it beats having a ton of hardware equipment or a bunch of software that you have to install. Blows the socks off of your your, your OBS, if you will, uh, although I've never really been a big user of them, so maybe that's unfair, but I just love StreamYard. So check them out at metkevinocom slash StreamYard. So what did Loretta Mester just say? Well, she gave us some insight that in her opinion, A, credit quality is still in a great, a great position. That is good. This is sort of echoing what Jamie Dimon mentioned, that look, uh, defaults are rising, but they're actually still lower than 2019 levels. Now, some forecasters are suggesting, don't worry, it'll just be a matter of time before credit quality actually deteriorates and we end up having more defaults than we did in 2019. And that's absolutely possible. That could definitely happen. But Loretta Mester, at least now, for the Federal Reserve's point of view, thinks we're not seeing that yet. She also suggests that the banking crisis has stabilized, though sometimes I take that with a grain of salt because, of course, if she went up there and said the banking crisis is getting worse, then she would self-fulfill the banking crisis getting worse. And that's the last thing they want to do. She also, in an earlier interview, mentioned that she sees the Fed funds rate going to 5%. And then potentially going slightly above that, which in my opinion is one more rate hike. Because after all, right now we're at 4.75 to 5. That means the average is somewhere around 4.85, right? Well, if we go one more rate hike, the lower bound is 5. The upper bound is 5 and a quarter. The average is about 5.15. That's slightly above 5. That's literally where the summary of economic projections suggests rates are going to go. So I think the market still has another 25 BP hike in it. And part of that is also psychological. It will show markets. The Fed has this unrelenting uh, uh, mission of making sure inflation appropriately comes down and ends up proving to be transitory, hopefully. So uh, I think one more rate hike is definitely in store. I wouldn't be betting for a pause just yet, though she says it's possible if data keeps coming in weak. We just had a weak uh, ADP jobs report. Let's see what happens in the next jobs report and the next inflation report. I can actually give you the next inflation report's uh, projections. Let's take a look at that. Uh, the next projections for the next uh, inflation report, and I'll give you the jobs report as well, may as well. So the next jobs report is going to be on the 6th at 5.30 a.m. The projections for that are 240,000 jobs. Uh, that is compared to a prior release of 311. And we're looking for an unemployment rate at 3.6 with average hourly earnings month over month up 0.3%. Still a little rich, that's 3.6% annualized. If we look at the 12th, which the 12th is a very special day because obviously that's when we're going to be raising prices again for those programs on building your wealth, you get lifetime access to. Link down below. Check out uh, that program. Go to metkevin.com slash join or just go to meetkevin.com. You can see everything, including my actively managed ETF, the courses, some affiliate links, uh, sponsored links, and so on. So what do we have for jobs? Or sorry, CPI. So CPI expectations for the 12th, April 12th, 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time. CPI month over month expected to come in at 0.3% versus the 0.4 prior. CPI uh, core, 0.4, it's actually a little higher. 
uh, versus the 0.5 for the prior, a little lower from the prior, but a little higher than, than the headline. CPI headline to come down to 5.2. Really big drop actually from the 6% that we had in the prior. Part of that is because of year-over-year -year base effects. We really started seeing inflation jump last March. Where the Fed was still printing, by the way. Isn't that crazy? Uh, and then core CPI expected to come in at 5.6. So make sure you write down those numbers. Those will be quite important. Now, Loretta Mester makes sure to remind us that their goal is not to tighten until something breaks. And obviously, if uh, things start breaking, they're willing to, as she says, recalibrate. But the biggest thing that I really got from her was this idea of we probably want to price in one more rate hike get above that psychological threshold of a low of 5%, but then also make sure that we realize how fate could work. And fate really relies on disinflation coming in the future. And that's problematic if we don't convincingly create the impetus for disinflation. And that's why I think that extra rate hike is probably in store. Because again, if we pop over to this spreadsheet here, this is not what the Fed wants. They do not want this kind of chart. Let's hit the undo button, and I want you to see how this right tail goes away as we hit the undo button here. There we go. You can see that right tail going away as we get lower inflation in the future. This is ideally what the Fed would want, right? The more of that upper tail you have, the higher for longer we have and the more recession uh, time we have. This would be ideal. This would then prove inflation transitoriness. But again, would require some artificial intelligence revolution. Now, I do actually think that the artificial uh, intelligence revolution has the real potential of replacing a lot of jobs. I mean, consider this. In the course member live stream just the other day, we talked about how 69% of Google's revenue comes from search. And then another segment of Google's revenue comes from website placement. But think about this. I had a discussion with my brother-in-law yesterday uh, who's, uh, who's in software. He's a brilliant, uh, brilliant software engineer. Uh, and uh, one of the things that was so incredible was this idea that uh, it was, it's really basic. This idea of like, hey, I need, let's just make an example. I need a new charger for a baby monitor. Okay, so you Google, what's a replacement charger for this baby monitor? And you get like 20 different results for random different chargers. And you're like, I don't know which one is actually compatible with my device. You're clicking on different websites. You're going through all these different ads uh, just to get an answer. It's difficult to get an answer. Take the same thing, put it into ChatGPT4, boom, answer. Well, what just happened? Well, A, you didn't get fed any search ads. And B, you didn't get any uh, uh, Google network ads. Keep this in mind. Google network ads represent 11.1% of Google's revenue. Google search ads represent 69% of their revenue. When you combine network, like website placement ads, and search ads, 80% of Google's revenue could potentially be replaced by ChatGPT. You know what ChatGPT should do? Uh, they should get life insurance in as little as five minutes by going to metcavin.com slash life. Because seriously, 80% of Google's revenue may disappear. I cannot own Google stock right now because of that. People keep asking me like, oh, Google, it seems like such a value play. Yeah, fantastic. I completely agree. It looks fantastic. It looks like it's multiple has collapsed. It looks like it's a good deal. It looks like it's oversold. But wait a minute. Now I want you to price in that Google might be a Xerox. Ooh, think about that for a moment, okay? That's a big, big, big claim right there. 
because Xerox was a killer for a very long period of time. Z Xerox was was the company, folks. Uh, I, I mean, Xerox was awesome. Uh, they had the nickname Go Xerox It, which was basically the Kleenex version of Go Make Copies. But what replaced Xerox? The internet. The internet and email basically replaced Xerox. Well, today we say as part of the internet, oh, go Google it. Okay, well, what might we no longer say in the future? Google it. In fact, you might just use an app. And quite frankly, we might not even say go ChatGPT it because that's a bullcrap name anyway. ChatGPT could just have its API embedded into other apps. Consider that for a moment. You can embed the ChatGPT API into any app. So any customer facing app, which literally could be Siri on your phone, or if you're one of those pixel green texters, which I actually have as well. See, I have two, two, actually I have three phones. Uh, three phones and five phone numbers. That's normal, right? Uh, oh, by the way, I just got this like Pelican little wallet here. Um, it's really a lot stronger of a magnet than I expected, but I have to say it's a little bit of a pain in the butt to open. Like I have trouble opening it, but I rarely do for credit cards and wallets and stuff, but like, oh, I got it. Kind of cool. You know, you can put your stuff in here. So not bad. Uh, I kind of like it. I don't, I don't know why I got a Pelican version of it, but I did. Anyway, okay. So point is Google could become the Xerox of our generation. And you heard it here first, but I think that's scary. Uh, really scary. I mean, think about that. Uh, you know, yeah, there will be AI ads. Maybe, maybe that's what people miss. Maybe not. Do you think... I'm going to use Siri if I go, hey, I'm not going to say her name. I'll call her Joe for a moment. I'm going to misgender her. Hey, Joe, let me know uh, how much it would cost to buy a new charger for my baby monitor and how quickly I could get it. Here's the result from Amazon, you know, whatever. Maybe that Amazon is a product placement, right? And maybe Amazon pays for that ad. That would be reasonable. But... If I, as a consumer, am able to program in, only give me search results from Alibaba, well, then I have the choice of the marketplace, right? Now, the point that I was trying to make is, am I going to be willing to go, okay, Kevin, before I give you the answer, let me read you an ad. Check out Kevin's courses on building your wealth. No, of course not. People are going to lose their mind. People aren't going to use the voice ad, right? Now, there's the idea that, okay, fine. Then maybe if you type it into chat, you could get a display ad. Yes, maybe. But if 80% of Google's revenue comes from search and display ads and people have to search multiple times to get their answer, is it not possible that that falls by 90% because people get the answers they need right away? Yes. And it's not just that. But people also search YouTube for answers. YouTube makes up 10.4% of Google's revenue. Well, if Google makes up or YouTube makes up 10.4% of Google's revenue, you might think, oh, well, well, YouTube revenue is going to grow, right? Wrong. It's already shrunk 7.8% over the last year. So it's already not growing that much. But if somebody is able to chat GPT their answer on, hey, how do I do this? Or chat GPT can digest videos and give you answers. Whew, game changer.
game changer for people who uh, who want uh, uh, you know a quick answer to something. How to X is over. Now I think that would be different for sort of uh, deeper perspective. Like if you don't know what you're searching for, that value will always still be there. Like you have no idea the stupid stuff I'm gonna say every single day, and hopefully that's why you come back to my videos because. When you watch, you learn something and you're like, huh, I never thought about it that way. That's the whole point of me making my videos, right? Is you don't even know what I'm going to say. <laughs> so that's the point of coming back. If you knew I was going to tell you buy index funds and don't worry about anything every day, you might be less inclined to come back. If uh, you knew that uh, like if you're searching how to change an outlet and you know how to change an outlet, why would you watch a video on how to change an outlet, right? You wouldn't. So um, it's, it's very interesting how disruptive artificial intelligence could be from a deflationary point of view. And Google, I think, is, is potentially the future Xerox of our generation. Uh, and there may not be a Google the way we know it anymore in the future, which is kind of crazy because, like, Google is, I, I mean, I think they'll still be uh, Google Drive and Google Calendar and Gmail, uh, you know, we'll pay for those services. I think Gmail in the future probably won't be free anymore. It'll become like a Twitter thing, eight bucks a month or whatever. Um, although that's not going so well for Elon. I think there was just a Barron's piece on just like, uh, uh just that, uh, Elon's, um, Elon Musk, uh, Twitter Blue, something like that. So it was one of the pieces basically talking about, I'm pretty sure it was Barron's, uh, less people signing up than thought. But anyway, Point being, there's a big dis dis disinflationary impetus coming via AI, and it's probably going to lead to lower rates in the future, and a Fed that opportunistically is willing to let inflation run a little bit hotter, because quite frankly, it could be the last time in our lifetimes that we actually have to worry about inflation, which is a really weird thing to think about because of disruptive innovation, unless, of course, we have a stupid government again that overprints money which that's entirely possible. I mean, that's almost redundant to put the word stupid and government together. And that's not to blame individual bureaucrats. It's just the system together is just a complete disaster. Uh, so I don't know. To me, I think those are very interesting perspectives to think about. Uh, and uh, all I know is I could get 12 free stocks by going to metkevin.com slash Weeble, another one of those paid promotions. Uh, and we finally changed the promotion to just, we actually spelled it correctly now, paid promotion. So anyway, that is my update on, uh, on, on Loretta Mester and the death of Google. <laughs> all right, let's listen it over here for a moment. To many of the growth stocks that got crushed last year. So again, this is a story, uh -oh, in my Morgan opinion, Stanley. of what was hit last year hard is, is starting to come back. So I think lower yields is good for parts of the market, but it's not good for the cyclical stocks. We certainly saw that yesterday with some of the industrials really getting, getting hit hard. So I think there is a rotation uh, going on in the market. I just, I would be just very cautious on uh, some of the stocks are pricing in a very dire outcome, and I'm just not sure. You know, Matt mentioned the yield curve inverted six months ago. Why in the heck is the stock market higher? If you look at the history of when the inverted yield curve inverts and it starts to uninvert, usually the stock market is at a high when that happens. It's not, you know, back to where it was two years ago. So again, the question is what's in price into the stocks? And I think that's why lower yields is helping grow stocks. Well, it's the bull steepener we should be worried about, isn't it, Andrew, when you start to price in a rate cutting cycle like we have done in the last month? 
no question about that. But again, look at the history of that and look at how history. the market's done the previous 12 months when that starts to happen. It's generally done very well. It hasn't been weak the way it is now. Are we litigating the last 12 months or making a judgment about the next 12? Well, that's right. I mean, so again, all I care about is what embedded in stock prices, and I think that's why mega cap tech stocks are rallying because they were down so much last year. I have a hard time, again, justifying them at these prices. So it's not, I'm not saying the market's going to break to the upside. But all I'm saying is this is why we keep throwing bad news at the market and it doesn't really crack because it's a lot of is embedded. But the longer the market hangs in there, eventually we're going to price a recovery next year. And I think yeah. that will be bullish, but yeah. it's far too early. Matt Miss, can I say yeah. from you, we've got to price a recession before we price a recovery. Okay. Exactly. I mean, the order of operations is every time the cycle looks at that inverted yield curve, the leading economic indicators go negative. We hit that recession, as you said, bull steepener, the Fed cuts, and then we start a new cycle. You know, you got to wait for those things to pass one by one. And right now we're, we're still in that late cycle environment, not in the recession yet. The unemployment rate, you know, this initial jobless claims, this job support, I know everybody hypes up every single one, but it is. If, if you start to see real cracks in the jobs data, that is usually the catalyst of the recession signal and the Fed to cut. And if that happens the next couple of months, it's going to happen fast. And again, in the high quality bond market, it's going to move before the Fed tells you. You've got to be there before that happens. And that's why, again, that's one of our highest conviction calls cross asset today. Matt Miskin, Andrew Sliman, sticking with us. We'll pick up on the banks in just a moment. Amazing to see. Okay. Somebody just donated $5, and they said that uh, I could use uh, ChatGPT through Siri, and uh, I don't really believe you, but now I'm going to try it. Uh, uh, so here we go. What is the economic status of the Third Reich? I get a text response. Um, that doesn't work yet. It just gives me a text file, but there's no, there's no response yet. Do you use back tap? I guess I have to screw around with it. Apparently, it's possible. I put the API key in, uh, which is kind of cool. Use back tap to launch. I don't care about that. I just want it to work. Maybe I have to use back tap to make it work. But anyway, it doesn't work yet. Maybe I didn't save it. Let me try again. But that would that's really cool. Add API key here. I did that. If text can, uh, okay. All right, we did this. Let's try one more time. What day is it? Stupid. Yeah, it just gives you a dumb text file back, but it, there's nothing even in it. So somebody says, same thing happened to me. I couldn't get it to work. All right. Well, maybe somebody has an answer to that. Uh, here, let, let me open up uh, Poverty Chat, and maybe somebody has an answer, because I think that'd be kind of cool if we could all figure out how to do that together. Uh, I will turn on Poverty Chat. Edit, uh, edit from members to poverty. All right, there we go. Okay. Uh, while we let that cake bake, let's go look at uh, JP Morgan. Uh, we'll call it uh, J.P. Morgan's lash out. 
Kino, welcome. Thanks for being, uh, 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 look at this. My first message since I'm a member. I am no longer a member or message virgin. Thank you, man. Appreciate you being here. Uh, processing power for AI. Absolutely. That's why I'm a big fan of the uh, chips deeps. You're totally right about that. Yeah. We free. Oh my God. Let the poor speak. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. Let's, um, it works. My son does it. Well, that did me no good. <laughs> Maybe I could ask my seven-year-old to help me. <laughs> Somebody's like, that's racist. <laughs> uh, let me try again. All right, one more time, and then we have to talk about JP Morgan. So receive any input from share sheet, put the API key in, which I did. Oh, fantastic. I have a beautiful API key. I want, maybe I could make a new API key. Default organization. I'll just make a new key. Let's try. And I've, I've already upgraded, so it's a, you're, wait, why does that say I'm on a free trial? I'm not on a free trial. Maybe you have to already have paid, but I'm pretty sure I did because I pay like 20 bucks a month. That potentially could be what the problem is. All right, well, I'll have to play with that later, but I'll put in this new API key really quick and we'll try one more time. Uh, but that would be very cool to get this in, in Siri. There we go. New API key. Who is Donald Trump? Uh, yeah, it just spits back a stupid text file, so it's broken. Chat GPT via, via Siri is broken. Uh... <laughs> Let's see. I've used a dozen text image generators and not a single one can handle more than two animals at a time. Oh, that's interesting. What do they kind of blend them together? This is why you cannot let everyone in. <laughs> this is a mess. Oh, <laughs> we are free. The video on YouTube, download the shortcuts app. Yeah, that's what I did. And I downloaded the shortcuts app and then I, I pasted. So anyway, uh, we'll see. Yeah, I don't think I'm on a poverty trial. Because I, I was I paid. I already put all my stuff in. This is unacceptable. That's it. We need to when we need to talk about JP Morgan, then we gotta get to the course member live stream. The JP Morgan piece is pretty good. Some good parts in it. That's it. That's it. Let's try to unlock let's see if I can get out of poverty right now. More information is required. Oh, they want my state. Set up okay that's the only thing i could guess but I'm, okay your subscription was successful i thought i had already subscribed all right api keys let's try again if it doesn't work now then that's not the problem who is donald trump yeah, bogged same thing same little text no nope. i just wasted all that money all right scammed I'll figure it out and then I'll make a video on it. Okay, now we gotta talk about JP Morgan. Who's who's ready to talk about JP Morgan? It's actually really insightful. So let's get this ready. That's ready. And um, all right, that's enough poverty for now. So let's go back to rich people chat. <laughs> that's 
sounds so terrible. Okay. <laughs> All right, here we go. Um, now we got to talk about JP Morgan's Jamie Dimon and his letter to investors discussing how horrible the economic hurricane ahead of us might be and might become. Let's discuss this by looking at the most salient pages of his report to investors. Let's go right here. This is the JP Morgan letter to investors. And the first thing he tells us is that the inverted yield curve has an eight out of eight record for predicting a recession. Now that's important. However, there are some good signs with storm clouds ahead. Remember last summer, Jamie Dimon suggested that we were actually facing an economic hurricane. And I want to read this section to you because it's pretty salient. Until the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, the current economy was performing adequately, both here in the United States and remarkably better than anyone expected in Europe. That's true. We thought Europe was going to go into a deep, dark recession. The market was generally forecasting either a soft landing or mild recession with interest rates peaking at 5% and slowly coming down. There has been a lot of market volatility over the past year, partially, in my opinion, as people over-extrapolate monthly data, which is highly distorted by inflation, supply chain adjustments, consumer substitution, and basically poor assumptions about housing costs and other factors. But underlying all of this, consumers have been spending 7-9% to more in the prior year and 23% more than pre-COVID-19. <coughs> Excuse me. Similarly, their balance sheets are in great shape, and they still have, according to our own analysis, $1.2 in more excess cash in their checking accounts than before the pandemic. Credit card debt is simply normalizing. Now, that's really important to think about, that a lot of folks are looking at these charts and seeing savings rates down below pre-pandemic levels. And that may be true that new saving rates have fallen, but we still have much more excess cash than we did before the pandemic. On top of that, yes, credit card spending is going up and debt balances are going up. But Jamie Dimon suggests that this is just a normalization of credit trends. Okay. In addition, unemployment is extremely low and wages are going up particularly at the low end. We've had 10 years of home and stock appreciation. And even if we go into a recession, consumers would enter it in far better shape than during the great financial crisis. Finally, supply chains are recovering, businesses are pretty healthy, and credit losses are extremely low, similar to what we heard Loretta Mester say. The failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse have significantly changed the market's expectations. Bond prices have recovered dramatically, and the stock market is down, and the market's odds of a recession have increased. And while this is nothing like 2008, it's still not clear when the current crisis will end. It's provoked a lot of jitters in the market, and we clearly see some cause, uh, and we will, and clearly, hold on, and will clearly cause some tightening of financial conditions as banks and other lenders have been become more conservative. However, it is unclear whether this disruption is likely to slow consumer spending, as it has been running consistently higher versus the prior year and, of course, before 2019. Higher rates, though, particularly in mortgages, have reduced both home sales and prices. 
But do remember the consumer drives 65% of the economy in America. And while the current crisis has exposed some weakness in the system, it should not be considered, as I pointed out, anything like we experienced in 2008. Nonetheless, we have a unique and complicated projection ahead, specifically some of the risks we save. The potential that consumer savings are close to zero by year end. So let's try to start considering this from an implications point of view. Consumer savings, all of that excess savings we've talked about running out by the end of the year implies that we're really looking at probably a Q4 style recession. Because if we go back to 2019 style credit spending and debt, and we have run out of our savings, then we're really looking at a Q4 style recession. But then we wonder if we start the recession, are we going to be pricing ahead the end of the recession in which stocks could actually in a weird way be higher. However, there's a risk for persistent inflation, we know that, which is uh, driven by none other than higher fiscal spending and higher climate spending. These are inflationary. That's why I personally am parking my money where I think the higher fiscal spending and climate spending, chips, climate-related benefits, to help us soften the blow of a recession and potentially lower income excess cash evaporating though there are already signs that there are cracks in higher income as well. The biggest risk that Jamie Dimon foresees is persistent inflation with maybe no end in sight. That is the scariest scenario here. The scariest scenario of all is that basically inflation remains high, leading us to go into a recession and the Fed keeps rates high and doesn't cut. Of course, you've got fears around war and energy crisis uh, you've got oil, the potential for an oil run. Things are good now, but the storm clouds are clearly this. And they're, in my opinion, driven by almost solely the no end in sight to potentially inflation. Now, Jamie Dimon talks about, yes, but more people are moving into money market funds and interest rates are really important to the future. Uh, and the big thing that we want to be prepared for is that higher for longer. He says we have to look at the fat tails of higher interest rates at JP Morgan, potentially around the rest of the economy. So to make the assumption that for sure inflation is going to come down and rates are going to come down probably shouldn't be the base case scenario. That's the best case scenario. Now, Jamie Dimon also takes the opportunity to bag on the government. He suggests that it's very important our government focus on policy over politics which right now we have a lot of fear over uh, uh, divisiveness in our political environment, which means we don't end up solving the very real problems we have. Jamie Dimon says we need to do the following. Number one, a critical expansion of global energy and food security for the next decades, which is kind of a way of saying we need reliable oil and gas production, things like the Keystone Pipeline, more wells, not less, more energy security, not less. More investment in food, not less. He also, and this is a, in an op-ed that he wrote at the beginning of the year, but he's refer, uh, referencing it now. He says, we need to make sure we go back to the principles that originally made America great. And this is a little bit kind of almost uh, borrowing from, uh, from uh, the Trumpian ideas. But the idea here is we need to acknowledge the critical role of government and we need the government to be more accountable and more competent, better safety nets for the poor, but also at the same time, making sure we are economically dynamic 
uh, and and we reward basically merit, right? Good work, hard work. Uh, and so this is it's kind of balancing the idea here of saying, hey, we should have a government that, yeah, takes care of the poorest, but we've got to invest in energy, in food, in companies in a way that actually encourages capitalism. On top of this, he slams basically our current administration for essentially being too soft on China, that we're too worried about what China might think about us being tough on China. And we're not being strong enough as we should be with our military, especially in the Middle East, in Middle East that now we are being perceived as weak. And that actually deteriorates the strength of America. And it's exactly why a lot of people are worried about the American dollar potentially dissipating in strength now because of our weakness in the Middle East. So he also talks about uh, encouraging immigration. Uh, this is where you could see merit-based immigration. I'm a big fan of this, by the way. People who could come to America and say, look, I'm not going to be relying on your system. I want to come and learn and work. Great. As well as increasing education investment uh, in, uh, in, in basically preparing high schoolers and college students to actually get into the workforce. This is very similar to when I ran for governor, this argument that high schools and community colleges should help people get high-paying jobs, not low-paying jobs like you see uh, you know, high schoolers get today. So Jamie Dimon really, uh, in my opinion, if I were to summarize his piece, he makes this argument that, look, Things are a lot better going into this recession than in 2008, but we're going to go into a recession. So buckle up. We're walking into a recession. There will be a recession. So what should you do between now and then? Well, you should make sure that you're as educated as possible because that's going to help you get through this. He's basically saying, check out Kevin's programs of building your wealth link down below, which you can now use buy now, pay later for. Okay, really. He's telling us, hey, we don't know how long this pain is going to last, right? That's important. He's being very transparent. We have no idea how long inflation is going to last. We could be bullish on inflation coming down, but we should be clear with ourselves that, hey, how do we hedge against inflation staying higher for longer? Well, more cash and more income. Really important. That's how you hedge. More cash, more income. And yeah, if, if that's not saying don't buy stocks. Slowly DCA into stocks, but be careful if you're treading on with margin. Have a piggy bank that you can break to get out of margin if you needed to right away. I'm a little bit in margin right now, but I have a piggy bank to pay that off if necessary pretty quickly, which is great. So that's something to think about for everyone's personal situation. Of course, I'm a licensed financial advisor, but this isn't personal financial advice for you. You've got to think about your own situation. And he's giving you the warning that the end of the year is probably when we're going to see most consumer savings gone. So be prepared for maybe the biggest pain in Q3 to Q1. And don't rely on the Fed cutting rates to be your bailout. And he's also, in my opinion, reiterating that pricing power might be where that higher fiscal spending and climate spending is, chips and energies. This is why I like pricing power stocks. Look up pricing power style stocks on Weeble or whatever you want. Uh, but he makes it clear that, yeah, look, spending's up, which is good, but at the same time, it might not last. So I think he gives a very reasoned and level-headed warning here that, yeah, things are better now, but don't expect them to last forever. So. With that said, I've got to run over to the course member live stream. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate all of you as usual. Make sure to check out those programs on Building Your Wealth. A link down below. We're going to do the opening bell and some fundamental analysis with course members. So I'm excited to see you there. Thank you so much again, and we'll see you in the next one. Goodbye.